Hello and welcome to another episode of the Team Guru Podcast. This is episode number seven. If you've listened to the show before, you'll know that it's my mission to bring to life the theory and principles of team and leadership by talking to people who make it happen in the real world. This episode, if I do say so myself, really hits the mark. Prue McKenzie is quite simply one of the most impressive people I've ever met. Beneath her easygoing manner and quick wit lies formidable intelligence, a wickedly competitive streak, and lofty ambition. Prue graduated from her commerce degree with honours and at the very top of the class. At 29, she became a vice president at the global financial giant Credit Suisse. She's a Harvard Business School graduate, and currently, she's a vice president at Horizon, Australia's largest freight company. And all that is very impressive, especially when you consider she's only 35 years old. But as you know, being impressive isn't enough to get you on this show. The thing I most like about this chat with Prue is her keen awareness of herself as a person and as a leader. You'll hear her talk explicitly about her journey as a leader, what she's learned from mentors, the value she places on being part of a team, her thoughts on learning about the theory of leadership and the challenges she's faced putting it into practice. This episode of the Team Guru podcast is custom built for anyone who wants to be inspired in their career, to pursue the best version of themselves, and to overcome the obstacles that might get in the way. I hope you enjoy my conversation with the very impressive Prue McKenzie. Prue McKenzie, thank you so much for joining me on the Team Guru podcast. Pleasure to be here, Dave. Prue, you're in your mid-30s. You've been a vice president in a large organization for seven or eight years. When you think about your professional success, which of your personal characteristics do you think has contributed the most? I think I'm very driven. I'm very driven to achieve goals and I make sure I surround myself with people that are of a similar nature, that share the same vision, that all want to work hard to achieve those goals. You say you're driven. What do you mean by that? What is it that's inside you that keeps you so motivated? I think it's achievement and it's achievement of projects, achievement of business outcomes that are going to make a difference and that matter for the world sounds very grand very grand, but you know, in the day to day that I do now, business decisions that that improve Australia, that make us more globally competitive. That that is what I'm driven to do and to achieve at the moment. So as we roll through our conversation today, I want to put together a story of who you are and how you've come to be where you are. But I'd like to start at the end and I'd like you to tell us a little bit about your current role. You're the Vice President of Commercial Marketing and Coal at Horizon. And for anyone who doesn't know Horizon, they're a company that has a market cap of nearly $11 billion. So they're a big company. They're the largest mover of rocks around Australia. So that's who Horizon is and you're very senior within that organization. Tell us what it is that you do. 
Right. Well, Horizon, as you have rightly pointed out, is a very significant corporation in Australia. We're the largest transporter of freight around the country and we haul coal, we haul iron ore, we haul intermodal products, we haul bulk minerals like copper and lead and zinc. What I do is I look after our customers in the coal business. So I look after the existing contracts that we have today with coal customers, big multinational global miners like BHP and Glencore. And I also am accountable for what happens to that business in the future. So the strategy and the plan to win more customers, more contracts. I look after a team of nearly 20 people who actually individually manage those accounts across both Queensland and New South Wales. So when you say you look after them and you're responsible for, what do you mean by that? What I guess I'm asking you is, what does your day look like? day to day? Or what does your role look like week to week or month to month? What do you really do? What do I really do? Well, I see when I say look after, um, I mean, I'm I'm the leader of, of that team. So I provide that strategic direction. I set the, set the course with my team and I make sure they understand what it is that we're trying to achieve as a business, work with them to do that make sure that I definitely, it's not its not Prue's way, it's what's the team want to achieve. We make sure we have buy-in across the business to achieve those goals and then we actually go on a day-to-day basis to achieve that. So there's there's two elements. There's the, the day-to-day managing the contracts. So we have you know large contracts for periods of four to ten years with existing coal customers. So they give us to to the nitty-gritty is, you know, that those contracts demand that we haul a certain amount of coal every year and we have to make sure that the, the trains turn up and we actually do deliver what the miners have produced at the mine and take it to the port. The second part of my role is to make sure we win new contracts so we keep growing the business for Horizon. So, you know, a more significant amount of my time is is taken by identifying what those contracts are that are coming up to be renewed and then actually working with the team and working actually across the business to make sure that we secure those contracts coming up. So for example, at the beginning of the year, we started working on renewing the Anglo, Anglo-Americans Dawson mine in the, in the, in the uh, Mara system of Queensland. And we, you know, we identified that that was a contract that was, that was up for renewal. We made sure we absolutely understood how that contract or what it was that Anglo's objectives were. And we worked with them to put a proposal together that enabled us to ultimately end up securing that contract for a significant period of time. So when you're dealing with such large state negotiations, what is it about you that makes you good at it? I think before I and the team, because it's not just, I learned very early in my career that if you are, if you ever talk just you, you will not achieve anything. You must um, absolutely make sure that you have, you know, you use the power of the organization that you work for to achieve your goals. So I think, you know, as a team, we spend a lot of time before we actually even commence the execution part of the work, actually understanding what our objectives are and what the customer's objectives are. And if you can understand what the customer's objectives are and your objectives, you can work very quickly through all the points that are relatively similar and where you've got aligned interest. And then you don't need to spend a lot of time thinking about how you're going to solve those problems because it just automatically will, it, it should fall out. And then you can focus on focus on the, the problem solving around where you don't have aligned interest and where you have to assess, you know, which party is the best one to take risks. 
We're going to talk a lot later about your leadership style and your approach. But when I was doing my research online, um, I read some very pleasant things about you and they came in a couple of categories. One of them was that you're a fantastic communicator and that you have a gift for communicating really complex things in a really simple way. The other was that you're a wonderful leader of teams. So we're going to talk about that in more detail. But the other thing that came out about you that you do really well is your ability to plan and implement strategic direction. When you hear the word strategy, first of all, I want to know if you think it's overused. And then I want to know what you mean when you talk strategy. Well, firstly, I don't. I think a, a well-defined strategy with a with a plan that can be measured is absolutely not overused. I think that any project, uh, any business that I've been involved in that has very clearly articulated their strategy, and I'm sure we'll talk about Harvard Business School, uh, Dave, as we work through this. But understanding how to write a strategy that's smart, that you know has a very defined objective, that can be measurable. And over a period of time, so that there's actually goals that you want to measure and over a period of time, I think is absolutely crucial and is definitely not overused. And my belief is that unless you actually have a very well-defined strategy and a plan in place to actually achieve it, it's very difficult in business um, to achieve your goals because there's too many external forces that can push you off track unless you have something to keep coming back to to remind you what it is that you're trying to achieve. Let's turn our attention now to the story of how you got to where you are and in particular your education. Your undergraduate degree was a Bachelor of Finance. How early was it clear to you that you wanted to do a Bachelor of Finance? Very, very late actually, Dave, in, in my um, tertiary education. I, all I knew, to be honest with you, when I left school was that I wanted to continue with my musical education. I did a huge amount of music at school. I played piano. I did composition. And I couldn't imagine when I went to university that that would all stop. So I enrolled in a Bachelor of Science and Bachelor of Arts degree. I thought that was the broadest possible outcome that, or broadest possible degree that I could, I could do because I really didn't know what I wanted to do. So I commenced science and was doing biology and, and then I was obviously doing my music degree and I love the music. The science definitely wasn't for me. And I think that for people that probably know you best when you're a 17-year-old are your parents and my mother thought that I would be quite good in the business world. Now, my mum's a vet, so I'm not sure how she defined what the business world was, but she thought that I would be well suited to that. So I changed after six months to a Bachelor of Commerce and continued on with my music and picked up French. And it wasn't until two years into my Bachelor of Commerce that I did one of the finance subjects, which was compulsory in the Bachelor of Commerce, and I really hit my strides. And for the first time at university, putting aside the music in French, which was obviously a passion, I was doing something that I was generally interested in. And I was just generally fascinated with the concept of how there was companies on the Australian Stock Exchange and why did they trade at $4 instead of $4.50? I started reading the AFR and was generally just fascinated by business and big, big companies in Australia. Three years in, um, I didn't know what form that would take in terms of a job, but uh, was very fortunate to have some fantastic tutors within my undergraduate Bachelor of Commerce degree who had just recently completed an internship at one of the big investment banks down in Sydney. And they came back and told us about, you know, how fantastic the work was, how bright the people they were working with, and of course, the starting salary. And so after, after three years of a Bachelor of Commerce, I decided I'd do honours because 
the goal was to become an investment banker because they were the highest paid of all the graduates that came out of the University of Queensland. So it doesn't it's it's not very noble, but um, that, was, that was <laughs> that was that was the that was the decision process. I definitely didn't turn my back on the the music in French. Um, I thought, oh, well, I'll be an investment banker for five years and then I'll make the change and, and run an arts company. So, to be the, the CEO of Opera Australia was, was what the plan was. I wasn't going to sell my soul to investment banking for a long period of time, but just enough to learn what I needed to about business. And make a heap of cash. Make a heap of cash and, 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 then, do good. and then do good and then, and then go to the arts. So, that was, that, was the, that was the strategy. But I was enormously fortunate to be um, – to go through at the University of Queensland to do the honours degree, which was, you know, just such a fantastic program because it taught you to think critically and not just to accept what you were reading, to analyse and question what was there and not be afraid to speak up as well because I was someone that went through an undergraduate degree by sitting at the back of the class, not really participating, not really engaging the way that you were forced to in honours and that 12 months of being forced to engage was absolutely, life. absolutely instrumental in terms of making sure that when I hit the ground running in an investment bank, I wasn't just another person in the room. I was someone that was thinking and asking questions and challenging what, um, you know, what, what, what we discussed within our team and then also with clients. You've told us that you were highly motivated and you were deeply interested in the subject of finance but did study also come very easy to you or very easily to you because you won the PwC RS Gunther Prize for highest mark in the Bachelor of Commerce of everyone at University of Queensland that's quite the honour and um, I'm interested to know did that come easily to you? I think like most people if you find something that you're passionate about you work hard at it and you want to do well. So, but most people don't get the highest marks at the university. <laughs> okay, so combined with finding something you're actually generally interested in with uh, a competitive personality, or a com- why, why can't you be the best, I guess? And um, I'm not afraid of saying that I'm competitive and I enjoy winning. And so, if the study was a means to an end of of you know of doing well then you know that was absolutely what the path that I was going to be taking so you were feeling very competitive at university you wanted to be the number one in the class oh absolutely were you aware of the RS Gunther prize or did it come as a surprise to you at the end of the year uh no I was I was aware of it and I was I was aware of it and but through university there was um they had prizes for topping various subjects and I, I picked up a couple of those in, in finance as well. And one of them was a $1,500 prize, you know, award. And, you know, as a university student earning $12 Nothing. an hour doing a bit of tutoring, $1,500 seemed like a lot of money. So, I definitely I definitely had those goals and, and the ambition um, and the competitive spirit to go and achieve achieve that. So, after you won university... You went on to Credit Suisse, where you were an analyst um, in 2002 for a couple of years, and then you were an associate, and then you were a vice president. I've done my maths, and you became a vice president at 29 at Credit Suisse, a, a company that has a market cap of $42 billion, so it's no corner store. What did you learn about yourself in that early phase of your career? What, what didn't I learn about myself is probably that it was the most 
I can't imagine a more rigorous way to begin a career than than an investment bank. Uh, you know, investment banks sell themselves to graduates as being a place where you work with the brightest people and get exposed to, you know, the most complex, largest transactions in corporate Australia. And I certainly got all those experiences, you know, when I started in Sydney. I was very fortunate at Credit Suisse that, you know, I was able to work all around the world. So um, we, you know, I was based in, most of my career was in Sydney, but I did two and a half years in London. I did a stint in Singapore. We did two significant training programs in New York. So getting a global perspective on business was definitely something that, that I got at Credit Suisse. When people have asked me this before, I, I think resilience is one of the biggest things that I learned at Credit Suisse was that you will get knocked down. Uh, you will go through some really difficult times. You will work very, very hard. But you, if you can keep going and if you can be resilient to that, the, the rewards are significant intellectually from an achievement perspective and, of course, monetary. But being able to see through that next two days that are really horrendous or that next month that's really horrendous because there's something on the other side, I think is the biggest thing I learned at Credit Suisse. What's the atmosphere like in an organisation like that? The atmosphere at Credit Suisse, which was one of achievement, was one of winning deals because banking is very competitive. It's 10 investment banks, very difficult to differentiate yourself amongst your peers to win you know, a, a relatively small small amount of transactions. So it was it was a competitive environment externally, but not internally. Internally, it was very much a collaborative environment and one that really empowered their the people of you know the people to perform. And that I think was somewhat unique at Credit Suisse. And I can only looking back on it put it down to the leaders within the Credit Suisse investment banking franchise. I was enormously fortunate that on my very first day, I was moved to work with Campbell Lobb, who was effectively my boss for 10 years. And Campbell's integrity, Campbell's energy, Campbell's collaboration, his his empowerment of his staff, his, just, his love of what he did was just contagious. And to work in an environment like that, you know, I just, I just was so fortunate. And, you know, I just hope that some part of his leadership style rubbed off on me and I carry some of those traits to what I do today at Horizon. But to, to be a 22-year-old out of straight out of university and to go and work in an environment like that was, you know, you couldn't ask for anything more as a, as a Bachelor of Commerce Finance Honours grad. They are special leaders, those individuals who can take a place that might otherwise be no place for the faint-hearted, mm. a really hard environment, one that is by reputation a really impersonal, competitive environment and turn it into somewhere that you enjoyed being as a, as a really young Absolutely. professional. Absolutely. So I was going to ask you later on about mentors, but mm. I think you've already answered that question. Would, would Campbell be the, the person you think of first when you think of people who have influenced your own style? Oh, absolutely, and continues to do so today. I've been very fortunate. I've I've had Campbell play as obviously and continues to play a significant a significant part in my career, and 
just in in plain English keeps me on the straight and narrow when I um when I want to deviate and things you know <laughs> you kind of get attracted to something else but you know he he kind of pulls you back and keeps you focused. I've also was very fortunate that when I moved to Horizon. I worked, reported into the CFO at the time, Deb O'Toole, and she has been a fantastic mentor for me as well. A very different style to Campbell's, but intellectually an absolute powerhouse. And her, again, that energy, that passion, that excitement for, you know, actually, you know, succeeding in business has and continues to play play a significant part in my career. I want to ask you more later about your transition from Credit Suisse to Horizon. But first, I want to talk about the fact that when you were a vice president at Credit Suisse, you headed over to the US to the Harvard Business School to do what is effectively an executive MBA. I'd love to hear about the impact that had on you. I describe the program for leadership development as a way of accelerating your career by 10 years because it's a program that's designed for people that have been working for 10, 15, 15 years. You're already quite, you've experienced a lot. You're quite aware of your style, but the program for leadership development is about taking 100 professionals outside their work environment, spending a lot of time thinking about your leadership impact. You do 360 degrees um, surveys before you actually get over there. Uh, You do a a program called Best Self where you ask, you know, 15 to 20 people to write when you're at your best, which was a fascinating insight, which I'll come come to in a moment. But the PLD was really about allowing you to stop in your career and to reflect on what you've achieved and what it is that you need to do to go to the next level. And as the title of the course says, it's leadership focused. And up until the time, up until the time of doing that program, leadership was something you observed. I was very fortunate at Credit Suisse, as I've mentioned, that I had such fantastic leaders to observe, you know, across London, Singapore and, and Sydney. I got to observe fabulous CEOs, but it was observing without really any concept of a theoretical framework to put names and and to think critically about that concept of leadership, which up until that time, I kind of thought you either had it, you know, you were someone that got picked as the hockey captain at school or you didn't have it. And it wasn't something that you could actually learn and define. And the program for leadership development absolutely gave you the tools, um, the descriptors to think about leadership in a far more rigorous manner and to identify what parts of leadership or your leadership style were important and and what it is that you needed to do to, to transform to be the very best leader you could be. I'm really interested to know about the type of theories or principles or models that you came across while you were at Harvard that appealed to you and really resonated with you and how you took them back to the real world. Sure. The first one is the concept of positive psychology. And it's one that I talk about regularly with my team, that if you do a performance review with a member of staff, you spend, it's an hour and you spend 50 minutes talking about all the things that they are exceptional at. And in the last 10 minutes, you give them two things that they need to work on. You walk out and you think about those two things you need to work on and you forget all the good. And one of the and I think everyone can resonate with that. I mean, I know I certainly do that. What we got taught at Harvard and, you know, did cases around this was that concept of positive psychology, that if you know what it is that you do best, 
and you are at that place every single day, you are going to transform yourself as a leader by being that person. And that's where your energy is much better spent than if you go, well, so I'll just talk personally for me, like I'm not very patient. So if I spend all my energy trying to become more patient, I'll forget about all the things that I do that naturally come to me that I'm good at and I won't reach my potential. So that really resonated with me. And, and it just really, before you, are yeah, you, were yeah. you about to move on to another point? No, I was going to just continue on that because it's not just about you as a leader, but it's also about if you know that and understand that you enjoy being at your best and you enjoy doing those things that you're good at, that if you as a leader can put your team in a place where they are given the opportunity to be at their best every day, that is far more motivating for, t- uh, for, for your team, for your employees than if they're doing things where it's not something that naturally would come to them. There's lots of horrible statistics about how people feel in terms of what percentage of their day they get to spend okay. doing things that they're good at. Yeah, okay. Um, they're, and they're awful. Statistics in the Western world are yeah. really bad around that. Um, and a guy, Dr. Donald Clifton, did a lot of great work called yeah. The Strengths Finder, where you can do an inventory on what you're really good at. And there's all sorts of really great stats, stats that come out on the positive side about leaders who get their employees to work on things that they're already naturally talented at as opposed to leaders who get their employees to work on things that they're not very good at because they really want you to be well-rounded. You know, we all need to be well-rounded. So that whole concept about just working on the stuff that you find interesting and that you find rewarding because you're naturally good at it. Very, what else did you? Well, I'd like to, on that, I'd like to, um, I'd like to read further about it, Dave. Would you? Yeah, absolutely. I I feel very strongly about that and, and, and see it as, it was very powerful, very powerful in terms of that framework at Harvard and, and transferring it to, to my job today. Dr. Donald Clifton, StrengthsFinder book. I've got it. I can lend it to you, Thank in you. Fact. Thank you. So, what, are, what other theories really jumped out at you while you were there? From a leadership perspective, the positive psychology was the biggest one. The second was really the descriptors that I was referring to earlier around leadership style and that we we looked at the Campbell, the Campbell leadership descriptors and there's eight of them and the theory is that you don't need to be good at all of them but if you're not you need to make sure that whoever you delegate work to is so Dr Clifton was, says an individual need not be well rounded but a team should and it kind of links back to the positive psychology right you know if you can if you can build a team that has a, a you know, a very diverse skill set and background. That's what you need as opposed to someone that actually has everything within within that one package, which is, is probably impossible. And do you find that now that you've been through that experience and you've attached yourself to those philosophies, you do things like recruitment differently? You may have in the past, like all of us, tend towards wanting to see someone sitting in front of you who's really well-rounded and get them on into the team. Whereas now you might be more attracted to someone who just knows what they're good at and doesn't play the game of pretending that they're good at everything. Has that change taken place in you? Absolutely. I think it changes the way that I recruit for the team. That, for example, you know, when we think about a key account manager, we have some people that have an operational background. We have some people that have a, 
an accounting background. We got the opportunity to bring someone in that was a lawyer. We didn't have any legal strength in the team and it was nice to get someone with that that kind of background and that kind of problem-solving ability into the team. We recently hired someone with a procurement background and it's enormously valuable for the team to, to get that diversity of view in the room. We, we spend a lot of time understanding unconscious bias as well while we're talking about recruitment uh, and not trying to hire mini-me's because that's that's a very easy thing for organisations to do is to really get a cookie cutter approach to recruiting and get the same kind of people in. So we're very conscious of making sure that we do hire a diverse, diverse backgrounds, diverse from a gender perspective, diverse from an age perspective and a, and a background perspective. So some of those things that you really hooked onto at Harvard and found broadened your professional base, were any of them particularly difficult to implement once you were back in the real world? I think the whole concept of being at your best every day is is an easy or relatively easy thing to do if everything's going your way. When things start not to go your way or you're dealing with a difficult situation or person, I find that I very easily can revert back to not at my best is probably What's the best that? way to say it. What's the opposite of not at your best? For me, not at my be- best is being impatient, is jumping to conclusions without actually actioning something before I've actually thought it through. So because you know I because I so you know strongly believe in this positive psychology this concept of being at my best and I'm very aware of therefore when I'm not that because I can identify it and am aware of it I can, I I have strategies in place to make sure that to the extent that that does happen, which I try not to let it happen, that you know that you can take a deep breath, take some time out, just go for a walk around the block, and just just clear your mind before you kind of come back and make any decisions that don't really don't really position the organisation, you, your team, in in the best possible light. So it's when those less than ideal characteristics come oozing out of the stress. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So what sort of a leader did Harvard tell you that you are? Harvard told me that I was a leader that was a high energy leader. That I your Twitter was... account says that. Excellent. <laughs> Twitter is social media is, is a new is a new hobby of mine. Is it? Absolutely. Twenty two tweets. You've you've tweeted twenty two times. I have. I've been on Twitter now for actually three weeks. I'm stalking you online. That's excellent. More more people can do so. <laughs> I just think Safe. it's hugely powerful um, for us. Uh, and and I'm I'm tweeting on behalf of well within my role as vice president of commercial marketing at Horizon to try and think about how we can position Horizon as a thought leader. It's a way of it's a competitive advantage for us. It's a way of communicating to our customers and potential new customers what we stand for as a business. And we're using. We're using Twitter and LinkedIn primarily. We're off a bit topic here talking about social we media, are. but it I'm is gonna my, bring it back. Don't you it's, worry. It's, um, it's definitely something that I'm very conscious of that I think can transform the way that we market Horizon. So I did take you off topic. You were talking to me about the fact that Harvard told you you were an energetic leader. An energetic leader, one that was strategic. So one that absolutely would spend time thinking about what the direction needed to be for for your team, for your company, and then leading on that basis. We call it um, 
we, we talk about in terms of tight, loose, tight, tight, very tight initially in terms of defining what it is you're trying to achieve, very loose in a leadership style in terms of how your team goes about doing it, but very tight at the end in terms of making sure that the objectives you set at the beginning are, are met, that, you know, you measure it and that you actually achieve them. How closely did what Harvard tell you actually align with your real experience? Well, the way that when, you know, that, that Harvard tells you is you look at your 360-degree feedback, which includes, you know, the reflections that you have within yourself. And it really, it put names to what it is that you kind of generally feeling um, that you didn't, you just knew you were doing, but you didn't really know how to articulate it or um, define it uh, or capture it in a way that it, w- it could become rec- replicable. Is Harvard really that great? Yes. It is? <laughs> we, we, I think we all drink the Kool-Aid within about the first three hours. So it's, it's as good as its reputation suggests. It's absolutely as good as its reputation suggests. What's so suggests. good about Harvard? I think for those of us that like to be intellectually stimulated in business-related affairs, the way that they teach you through the case studies is phenomenal. The way that you prepare for them with your peers, with your living group, the way that you get into a classroom with the leaders of fields globally as as your professors to talk through whatever topic it is that, that you're doing at the time, that you get the benefit of a hundred people that have had it, that come from, you know, 50 countries from around the world, um, all different sorts of industries. Everyone with such different backgrounds yet that we all care so deeply about business and are generally excited by business outcomes is it's intoxicating. It's just fantastic. And that it also gives you the time to stop and reflect about yourself because we all like talking about ourselves and thinking about ourselves. So it was a, it's a way of, a way of, you know, you get in your day to day. It's very goal oriented. It's grind. It's you don't have a lot of time for reflection. And Harvard allows you that time um, when you're studying over there to to do that and to transform yourself into into the next stage of your career or continue to move up the the ladder. How did you find yourself at Harvard? One of my uh, alumni at. The University of Queensland, who started in banking like I did, he came back from doing the same program and told me everything I've just told you about how fantastic it is. And I took it to, I was still at Credit Suisse and I took it to Campbell and I said, I think this is what I need to to transform myself as a very transactional investment banker into someone that was moving into a more management role and would enable me to be a leader because my background was m and IPOs, doing deals. It wasn't a, a, you know, a business unit approach where I was a team leader of 30 people, you know, like I am now. So, I saw this as a way of bridging that, you know, that transactional pure finance theory into, into a, a more managerial and then, you know, ultimately leadership position. So, Credit Suisse sent you there? Credit Suisse sent me there. And then, as you finished, you duly left? Well, uh, halfway through the program, I duly left. Yes. Oh, gee. And how did that go down? <laughs> Look, I think, you know, I'd worked there for close to 10 years and... They'd got their pound of flesh. And I'd likewise got my pound of flesh out of them. And I was going to a client and I think that, Campbell understood, my boss at the time understood what it was I was wanting to achieve and that this was a 
this was absolutely step that I was taking into the corporate world was the right step for me. I was going to a very good company. I was working with exceptional leaders again. So they, they, they took it. They took it very well. What are your clearest memories from that transition period between Credit Suisse and Horizon? I was very fortunate in that transition because I actually knew the company and the executives at Horizon because I'd worked on the IPO the previous year. So the transition was relatively seamless from that perspective because I was going to a business that I knew or knew a little bit about, enough to sell it to investors, very different to the level of knowledge you have once you actually work in there and manage a P&L, but I knew it well enough. I knew the industry well enough. I knew the people well enough. And I went in as the head of M&A. So I had a skill I could rely on all the content knowledge that I was expected to provide you know, I had been doing for 10 years. So it was a, it was a very easy transition for me from that, from that perspective. One of the biggest memories was just the trust that was put into me from day one, because even though I've just described it as a relatively easy transition, I had some idea what I was getting myself into. The level of responsibility and just that inherent, oh, Prue's got that, was I just remember thinking was just phenomenal at the time. For you came into the organization at a very senior level. That's right. How else would it be? Very good point. (laughs) Very good point. (laughs) So it was one of those, you know, those sequel swims and it was, you know, it was a fantastic opportunity to be given that and you're the expert, you know, what is your opinion? And, you know, you had to stand up and back that and um, it was fantastic. I got the opportunity to build a team, which was 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 brilliant. It was a Horizon obviously being a government owned business. We were very long engineers. But prior to IPO, if we needed money, we just had to go to, you know, George Street and ask the Queensland government. As a as a private company, we had um you know, we had shareholders that we needed to make sure we could justify our, our existence to. So building a team, you know, that was long commercial ability, which is what what my mandate was within mergers and acquisitions was um, a fantastic opportunity and the people that that I was able to bring into the organisation, you know, have contributed a huge amount and it's one of my fondest memories or, or greatest achievements, I guess, within the role of M&A was the, the team that was built. So tell me about leading a team. At what point in your career do you think, or in any career, does someone think more about the way they're leading than their technical skill? Because you obviously started off purely on your technical skills and knowledge as a banker. And now as a vice president, I'm imagining you probably spend more of your time thinking about the way you're leading people. When does that transition take place? You're right in that initially I started off, it was all technical. And then, you know, today it's, it's leadership. I think that transition is gradual. If I look back on it now, and even to be honest with you today, Dave, you know, I sometimes have to pull myself back from being the one that actually goes in and and does something instead of being the one that, that is the leader. And I think, to be honest with you, it really occurred when I moved into the, the BU role, into the, when I was looking after the bulk and iron ore business, that you realize that it's physically impossible to be the one that is doing and be the one that's relying on their technical expertise. There is just far too much scope for one person to do it. And so that for me was, was very powerful in that there was no, no grey. It was you have to be the leader. You have to act as a vice president. 
if you try and out act as a key account manager to to achieve the the twenty things you need to do, it's it's impossible. You have to step back and you have to be the one that sets a strategic course for for the business. What are the hardest things about that process of stepping back? It sounds arrogant, but this is the first thing that's come to my mind that sometimes it's easier to think that you could do it yourself. But the reality is is that you don't do it yourself better than what your team can if you give your team the right direction. So that was the hardest thing probably for me. But I also am very confident in the people that I have working for me that I look to myself if there's something that that hasn't been achieved first before I go, well, you haven't followed instructions or you've been lazy. Is it fair to say that some of the some of the biggest challenges or the, the worst traits of senior leaders is when they fail to come to that understanding that it is time to step back and to focus more on themselves as a leader and their team than this technical skills and knowledge that got them to that level of seniority? Yeah, absolutely. I you know, I think that if leaders do focus on that, it's because they haven't given you the strategic direction. Every leader that I've worked with that's been exceptional in what they do has always made sure that they can articulate what the strategy is and what the vision is for the business. And it tends to be the ones that can't do that, that want to get in, or this is at least my observation, that want to get in and actually manage that, the technical or the the job that's four layers beneath what, what they're actually paid to do. I see leadership a little bit like the way I see people's approach to health and fitness. If you think about three, three separate categories, three loose categories, you've got someone who never thinks about their health and fitness ever. And you've got some people who think about their health and fitness a couple of times a week when they go to the gym. And then in between times, they don't give it a second thought. They eat what they want. They do what they want. And you've got the people at the other end of the scale who their whole life is structured around their health and fitness, the things they do, their activities, their weekends, their holidays, the food that they eat and the people they hang around with. I think leadership is a bit like that. We can have people who who are always thinking, people in senior roles who are always thinking about their way they're leading. We have some people who think about it when they go to a course and maybe for the week or so after that. And then we have some people in senior leadership positions who don't think about it at all. Where do you sit on that continuum? I'm someone that thinks about it all the time because I strongly believe that if you are not a good leader, you are not going to allow your business or your team to achieve. It's, it's, the, biggest, it's the biggest issue that, that I think that you face and whether it's or biggest, if you don't have it, it's the biggest impediment to achieving what it is you want to achieve. And going back to your sport analogy, it's the same in the sporting environment, it's the same in the political environment, it's the same in the arts environment. If you don't have a strong leader, it's it's pretty much impossible, I think, to actually achieve what it is that you're trying to do. Tell me about your hardest lesson as a leader, a memory that makes you cringe. I'll answer in terms of the, the leadership that makes me cringe and... Rather than being one event, it's whenever I'm not at my best. So if I become impatient with someone over a project or a proposal or managing an account, that's where that's what makes me cringe. Is that is that behaviour that you know you just it's not you at your best. Uh, Do you want some specific examples? I think that's almost a cop out, but if you okay. know, if that's all you got, I'm willing to all move right, on. Well, 
Inter- cringe is cringe is the word that I'll I'll hang on to to answer this question. I'll cringe at the end of the day when I look back on the interaction with I've, when I, an interaction that I've had with someone where I haven't been at my best. So you know I've thought that I've asked for a piece of work um, or I've asked a team to achieve a certain outcome and they have very high expectations from from my team and if if work comes back that isn't at those that level or hasn't followed. Um, or hasn't followed the sort of the direction that we've discussed, then depending on um, sort of the level of, of deviation. The pressure mood, in the atmosphere. <laughs> the pressure, the significance of, of, that, of that actual work, I can – I give fairly robust feedback is probably <laughs> the, the neatest way to say it. Right. I, I think I'm reading between the lines there. Excellent, excellent. If I was to sit down with your 20 direct reports and ask them what type of leader you are, what do you think they'd tell me? They'd tell me that... No, what would they tell me? Oh, sorry. What would they tell you? Okay. Well, I've, okay, yeah, I've asked them this question, so I know what they're going to say, or at least what they tell me that they tell you. <laughs> I think that they would tell you, or at least I'd hope that they'd tell you that, and this is my, my coal team you know, that, I, that I lead today that I've enabled them to understand what it is that they do on a day-to-day basis and how that fits into the broader strategic goals of the organisation. Because I came from a role that was very strategic in nature in, in, in being m I was able to transfer that knowledge I had of the business and also understanding as well of what the board and the CEO were trying to achieve with the company to what we do on a day-to-day business, which is far more transactional within the coal team. So, to be able to translate that vision and help my team understand how they fit in, I think is, is the biggest leadership impact that I have within the business. I also think as a leader that I've, you know, I, I have a lot of passion for what I do and, you know, with that comes, you know, an expectation of or an optimism that, of course, we're going to achieve. There is, there is no other outcome. So I think that I also, well, at least I hope that that is also what they'd say to you that, you know, that I'm driven, but I drive them to achieve and to, to think that, that they can, they can also achieve themselves both for what they're trying to do within the business, but also individually. A role like yours comes with pretty nice rewards, I'm imagining, but I guess it also comes with a significant number of costs as well. Are you winning or losing that scorecard? I definitely think I'm winning. I definitely think I'm winning, which is why you get out of bed every day. I I feel very fortunate to lead the group of people that I do. I think every one of them is exceptional and, and you know, has fantastic careers ahead of them. Well, they've, they've got great careers now. They've got, you know, even better things to come. So that, that definitely motivates me in the role that I've got today. And then the content of what my role entails, particularly in an environment that is very challenging for coal producers at the moment with the the headwinds of really the I haven't climate heard. change, <laughs> the 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 price issues the that they're facing from their customers, the slowdown obviously in China and what that means for the business. You know, for, from a macroeconomics perspective, it's fascinating to be in the middle of that industry. You know, there's certainly there's certainly costs, and you know, I would be not being sincere if I didn't say that. Um, you talked earlier about sport. You know, I don't get to train as much as what I like and, you know, can get frustrated when 
you know, you think that you should be able to make a PT session once a week, that's really your only commitment and you, you don't get there. But overall, I think that easily I'm winning and that, you know, there is a, there is a good balance. What are your thoughts on work-life balance? What's your philosophy? It is absolutely imperative if you're going to have a successful career that you do have some form of balance. Because if you don't, I think that you can just become too consumed in what you do and take it all too seriously. And at the end of the day, who wants to work with someone that, that doesn't understand that there's, there's life outside work and that can have a broader perspective than just what it is that they're managing day to day. So I think it's, it's important. You know, someone told me that, you know, your career is somewhat like an athlete in that you don't expect an athlete to perform at the highest level, like go to an Olympics every single day for decade after decade after decade. They need an off-season. You know how good you feel after a three-week holiday, how you come back and you're energised and, you know, you're more productive and you're more able to think of innovative ways of doing business. And I'm a big believer in that because I know how energised I feel when I come back from a break or that, you know, you – You've even just gone for a run at lunchtime. It's it's really important that you do get that balance and that perspective, and that you do give yourself you do give yourself some time out. When I did my research on you, I found a number of articles in things like uh, women in mining type organisations. So you're a, a female working at a very senior level in an organisation that's directly linked to mining. Do you feel like a flag bearer? for women in your role? Not at all. Um, maybe I should, but I feel or I, I want to feel that I'm a flag bearer of someone that believes in the customer, believes in the mining industry in Australia. That is what I want to represent. If you could be a positive role model for women, that is fantastic. And, you know, I hope that I am that. Um, I hope that, you know, I certainly encourage women to, to join our team, to to join Horizon, to do all of that. But I don't feel that I'm a flag bearer for, for women in, in mining, per se. All right. Only a couple more questions to go. You'll be pleased to know. Where is your career heading? I really enjoy working um, within an ASX 30 company. And I hope that I can move up to the next level and then the next level after that. I'd like to be a CEO of a, an ASX 30 company. So that's, that's what the goal is today. Having said that, you just don't know what's going to come around the corner, Dave. So I'm very open. But I think as long as you've got a job where you're achieving and you're working with great people and you're intellectually stimulated, I'll, I'll, see, where, I'll see where things go. Awesome. You just answered my next two questions in that answer. So All right, okay. let's <laughs> skip right to it. Now, you wouldn't know this because you haven't listened to any of my podcasts. But I always finish each interview by asking the same four questions. Tell me the Saturday night you most look forward to. An intimate dinner with your closest friends or a big party with lots of people you know? I like a balance of both. So, for example, I had a big party last night and I was really looking forward to that. But if I had to do that every Saturday, I probably wouldn't. So, I, I think that it's nice to have a balance of both. Are you more likely to get bogged down in the detail or caught daydreaming? I don't tend to find myself in both, but I'd probably say daydreaming because I certainly don't, 
I don't enjoy getting. I enjoy daydreaming. I'll answer it that way. I enjoy daydreaming, and I do not enjoy getting bogged down in the detail. When you make a decision, is it usually based on a rational thought process or on your emotions? On a rational thought process. That's the easiest of your your questions thus far. I'm I'm fairly rigorous in the way that I I think about problems. Last question. You're going on a road trip. Do you like to plan the route, book the hotels and know exactly where you're going or do you just get in the car and drive? I'd like to say that I get in the car and drive, but I I probably, probably plan it with a little more detail. Prue McKenzie, thank you so much for your time. I've really enjoyed our chat. Thank you, Dave, as have I. See, what did I tell you? Impressive person, that Prue McKenzie. She's achieved so much in her career already, and I don't think you have to be Nostradamus to predict that there's a lot more to come. There were so many accessible and practical ideas in that chat that we can all take with us on our own wanderings. But if I had to pick out one element for special attention, it would be Prue's reflections on the transition from skill-based professional to a true leader of people. As always, I'll share the lessons I took from this episode on the Lessons Learned page from the podcast. You'll find it on the Team Guru website. That's teamswithans.guru forward slash podcast. And keep an eye out on the Team Guru website for the next episode on this, my mission to bring the theory of team and leadership development to life. This is David Frizzell for Team Guru. Bye for now. 